How can we trust that the Bible we have today is an accurate copy of what was originally written? Discover the evidence and its importance on today's episode of A View from the Wall. Join I Am A Watchman Ministries Managing Editor Joe Kerr with co-host Dylan Burroughs, bringing you a fascinating discussion regarding the importance of Bible prophecy and Christian living today as it relates to our responsibility as believers to be watchmen. This is A View From The Wall. Welcome to A View From The Wall. I'm Dylan Burroughs together with co-host Joseph Kerr and we are honored to join you again today. Most Americans today own at least one copy of the Bible. It is by far the best-selling and most translated book of all time. But how did we get the Bible we have today? In today's program, we are joined by John Jeffcoat, who runs GreatSight.com, the world's largest dealer of rare and antique Bible manuscripts. They have been featured in the Wall Street Journal, featured in Hollywood films, and noted in many other outlets. Their organization also operates the Bible Museum in Phoenix, Arizona, offering a first-hand look at some of the earliest Bible manuscripts available today. Jeff, welcome to A View from the Wall. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Happy to be here with your audience. Well, thank you for joining us. And just to start, I mean, even the very idea of owning a rare or an ancient Bible is something many people only dream about. They don't even know where to begin searching for one. So let's begin with how your organization came about. Share a little bit about your story of the Bible Museum and the beginnings of GreatSight.com. Sure. Well, in 1987, the international director of the World Bible Society, Dr. Craig Lamp, decided to join with his longtime friend, Dr. Jonathan Bird, and to try to corner the market on rare and antique Bibles, because it was already a bit of a niche market to begin with. So they started the business in 1987. Uh, Dr. Bird had just sold off all seven of his Kentucky Fried Chicken franchises and was reinvesting all of that money into building the world's largest cafeteria not counting military commissaries. He built a huge cafeteria in Greenwood, Indiana, and up above the cafeteria, in a windowless room with no signage, something you could know about only by word of mouth, was the original Bible Museum. Um, I met Dr. Lamp and Dr. Bird in the mid-1990s because I had decided at my home in the Washington, D.C. area that I was going to start collecting rare Bibles. And I discovered them, of course, through word of mouth. After driving out there, which was about 600 miles, and uh, meeting with Dr. Lamp and spending a great deal of money collecting rare and antique Bibles, uh, I decided I was really interested in this. And they, he became my supplier for the next few years. But then as the internet became part of our lives in the late 1990s, I approached Dr. Lamp and said, would you permit me to take photographs of all of these Bibles in your inventory and put them on a website? And he said, sure. And I said, well, if I do that, would you give me the exclusive rights to market your material online while you continue to market them in person? And he said, sure, go ahead. And that was the birth of GreatSite.com in 1996. So today, we have upwards of 100,000 people a month that are coming to us online, and a lot of people that are coming to our Bible Museum facility, which in 1999 moved from Greenwood, Indiana, to its current location in the outskirts of Phoenix, 
John, even a short uh, history of the English Bible, it's almost comical to say a short history of the English Bible because we could do an entire three-hour show on that. But pick a few of the highlights of how we got our English Bible, help people understand how it came from the original manuscripts to the Bible that we have in our home today. Sure. I'll try to give you the abbreviated version, but I'll tell your listeners that if they really would like to get a detailed discussion of this, if they go to our website at greatsite.com, G-R-E-A-T-S-I-T-E dot C-O-M, and click at the top on English Bible History, there's a great 30-paragraph illustrated essay there about this. Now, having said that, let's take a brief overview of it. The Bible, of course, starts with the original Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament, and of course the deuterocanonical or intertestamental apocryphal books, which were part of almost all Bibles printed up until their removal in 1881, which were in the original Greek. To hit on a few of the highlights, the first time that the Bible was ever translated into anything that we would recognize as English, albeit a very antiquated form of English, but still readable by today's standards, would be when John Wycliffe, translated the Bible into what we'd call the Middle English, the language of Chaucer and Beowulf. That was done in the 1380s. Now, the unfortunate thing there with Wycliffe, he had great intentions. He forever takes the title as the first person to translate God's Word into English. But he only had access to the somewhat corrupted Latin Vulgate manuscripts. And so, while his intentions were good, and his translation is decent, it's not the best translation, because it's not from the original source documents. The other thing Wycliffe had going against him is he lived a century or so before the invention of the printing press. So there were no books in Wycliffe's day. Everything was a tediously scribed handwritten manuscript, and you couldn't make very many copies of it effectively. Well, we go past Wycliffe, and we'll skip over quite a bit, because we're just doing some quick highlights here. Going past Johann Gutenberg's invention of the printing press in 1455, which gives us the first book ever printed, which was a Bible. But it was a Latin-language Bible. So only the priesthood of the organized church and the aristocracy could read it. Of course, back then, the Roman Catholic Church ruled with an iron fist, and they insisted that the Bible would only be available in Latin. The Protestant Reformation comes about shortly after this, not as an attempt to destroy the Roman Catholic Church, but as an attempt to reform it in the sense of getting it to allow God's Word to be readable in all languages and not Latin only. Of course, they were not really successful at getting them to reform, and so they ended up with their own churches, from Lutheran to Baptist to Methodist to Presbyterian and so forth. But getting back to the course of the Bible, after Johann Gutenberg invents the printing press, books can be made, and, and copies of the Bible can be made, not tediously two or three copies at a time, but hundreds and thousands of copies at a time. The first time that the New Testament is ever translated directly from the original Greek into English, is also the first time that it is ever printed as a printed book. And that is by William Tyndale, who did this 
forward a bit. And in 1536, Tyndale was executed for the crime of printing and translating God's Word into English. Just before his execution, his associate, Miles Coverdale, takes all of Tyndale's work, finishes off the Old Testament that Tyndale didn't have time to do before being imprisoned. And in 1535, Miles Coverdale prints the first English-language complete Bible. As we move past that, two years later in 1537, we have the first complete English-language Bible translated exclusively from the original Greek and Hebrew, which is called the Matthew slash Tyndale Bible. If we move forward from that, we come to the first Bible of the Church of England, the 1539 Great Bible of King Henry VIII. And that leads to the second Bible of the Church of England, the 1568 Bishop's Bible of Queen Elizabeth. And finally, that leads to the third Bible of the Church of England, the one we're all familiar with, the 1611 King James Version. However, concurrent to that happening, we have the continuation of the Protestant Bible. After the Matthew Tyndale Bible, we have the famous and popular 1560 Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible is the first Bible to be printed in a clear Roman type instead of a fancy calligraphy-like type. It's the first Bible in English to have numbered verses. It's the first Bible to have commentary notes, making it the first study Bible. It's the Bible that Shakespeare quotes from over 500 times in his plays. And arriving on the Mayflower, it's the first Bible brought to America, though never printed in America. That gives us a quick nutshell general overview of the twin paths of the English Bible, the Church of England, or Anglican Church on one side, and the independent Protestant productions on the other. Well, this is a fascinating look at the history of the English Bible, and we'll be back with more and why it's important today. So stick with us right here on A View from the Wall. From I Am a Watchman Ministries, here's today's I Am a Watchman Minute. The I Am a Watchman Ministry desires to reach the lost, encourage and equip believers, and prepare all for the return of the Lord. There's a great need to share truth and disciple believers. Most in the Western world are not strong in their faith. Billions in Africa and India and in Arab and Asian regions are lost or persecuted for their faith. We want to reach them and equip them. Our vision is to facilitate the multiplication of godly leaders, watchmen around the world. Please consider being a prayer and financial partner in this important work. Free I'm a Watchman resources have been accessed by individuals in more than 160 countries, but there is so much more to do. Visit imawatchman.com to donate and to find out more. Be bold. Be faithful. Be a Watchman. I am a watchman.com. Welcome back to View from the Wall. Joe and I have been talking with John Jeffcoat, owner of GreatSite.com, and there are many fascinating stories about the Bible's history, but there's also a special event related to the English Bible's history in America. Take a moment to talk about this event and the importance of it. Well, on November the 11th, 1620, the Mayflower landed. Uh, they thought 
thought they were landing in Virginia, but uh, they were landing in what we call Massachusetts. And a lot, you know, a lot of people don't really understand the story behind the Mayflower. They envision these bold people saying, I want uh, to avoid taxation without representation, and I want religious freedom. I'm going to get on a ship, and I'm going to go to the new land and carve out a new life for myself. But that's not exactly how it happened. Those early founders of our nation wanted desperately to stay where they were. They did not want to take a nauseating three- to four-month journey across the ocean, during which some of them died. But the problem was, in England at the time, there was no separation of church and state. And King James actually required that you attend the Anglican Church. And there was a fine that would be the equivalent of $10,000 in today's money if you didn't. Now, the founding fathers of our nation, their first attempt to stay at home was to get some of the Anglican priests that were sympathetic to allow them to have their own separate worship service that wasn't so mired in the trappings of what they saw as Anglican and pseudo-Roman Catholic theology. And they got away with that for a while until King James found out they were doing it. And he said, no more of that. Then they tried to flee to nearby Holland, Amsterdam. And uh, the people in a position of authority were basically catching them and putting them in prison very briefly and then putting them back at home. So England was kind of like a prison state, too. It wasn't a pleasant place to live back then if you were Protestant. Eventually, a lot of them were able to get out, and they, they went to Holland, and they lived there for a few years, but they always felt as though they were outsiders. It was a different language. They had to work menial jobs. And it was this that brought them to a point of desperation, of contracting with people to lease the use of a boat to go across the Atlantic. But reluctant though they were, they felt they had no other choice. They landed on our shores in November of 1620, and with them, they brought two Bibles. Now, because this was an English ship, the ship's captain, of course, was required to have the obligatory King James Version Bible as the ship's Bible. But in addition to that, the pilgrims, as we call them today, were bringing their beloved English Geneva Bible. It reads about 95% the same as the King James Version, because both the Geneva and the King James are excellent and accurate translations. But the Geneva was done several decades earlier, and it embraced a lot of Reformed Protestant theology. John Calvin, John Knox, Miles Coverdale, and John Fox were on the translation and notation committees. So both of those Bibles arrived on the Mayflower. What our company has done is if you go to our website at greatsite.com, you'll see it advertised there on the main page. We have the commemorative 400th anniversary edition facsimile reproduction, which is an exact photographic duplicate, not a retype setting, of the original 1611 King James Bible and the original 1560 Geneva Bible, your choice, either one, in a commemorative 400th anniversary Mayflower edition binding, packaged together with an original page from each of those respective Bibles with a certificate of authenticity and a wonderful historical book uh, about the history of the Mayflower. John, I know in sports memorabilia collecting, 
it's the oddities that make something valuable to Bible collectors. Are there some unique Bibles that are valuable for very unusual reasons? Oh, there's so many, but let me pick one that stands out as perhaps the most controversial. The 1631 so-called Wicked Bible. It was a King James Version Bible, but it earned the name Wicked Bible because of a couple of really unfortunate typographical errors that caused the printers to be fined heavily and to lose their license to print. In 1631, this particular edition of the King James accidentally printed in the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt commit adultery, rather than thou shalt not commit adultery. And that's really where it earned its name, the Wicked Bible. All of these Bibles were rounded up and burned as heresy. Only a few copies were smuggled out and remained. And the last time I sold a 1631 Wicked Bible, it sold for nearly $100,000. And I've sold a couple of them. That's amazing. Well, there's so many fascinating stories like this. And we'll come back with a little more in our last segment here on A View from the Wall. Stick with us. The rapture can happen at any time. You may be ready, but are your friends and family spiritually prepared for the coming of the Lord? What will happen to those left behind? We've created a new resource to help you help them. It's called the Rapture Kit. Included in the Rapture Kit is a Bible and vital information on what the Rapture is and how to prepare for what's to come. The Rapture Kit also includes eight books on prophecy, apologetics, the Christian walk, and being a watchman for the Lord, plus a number of video and audio teachings all preloaded on an eight gigabyte flash drive. Become more strategic and active in your witnessing. Warn the lost about the coming rapture and help individuals in the post-rapture world be drawn to Christ, equipping them to become the next generation of ministry leaders. Learn more and order at rapturekit.org. Welcome back to our final segment of today's program. As we continue our discussion with John Jeffco with GreatSite.com, we want to encourage you to check out his website. For example, you can seriously shop for a 1611 original King James Bible, look at copies of Latin Bibles from the 1400s, and much more. But we started today's episode with the question of how can we trust that the Bible we have today is an accurate copy of what was originally written? Talk about that for a moment. You've had some of these odd uh, issues with Bible translations or printed editions that have had different errors. How does that help us to understand that the copy we have today is an accurate copy from when it was originally written? Well, that's an excellent question, and it's become more complicated today because starting in the 1970s, there's been an explosion of modern English uh, Bibles. Now, some of them are good, uh, most of the people who are qualified to hold an opinion, who are qualified to teach New Testament Greek and Old Testament Hebrew and have dedicated their lives to that, most of those people whose opinions we should listen to, they'll tell us that the English Standard Version, the ESV, is a trustworthy modern uh, version. And I believe that's correct, though some of the other modern translations are not as trustworthy. That's not so much an issue when we focus on our area 
all of the ancient Bibles were excellent and accurate translations into the English language at the time that they were written. Now, there is an exception. We have to keep in mind that this is the Protestant Reformation that we're talking about, and that the the antagonistic uh, battle here is between an organized church, which is the Roman Catholic Church, and to some extent, for a period of time, the English Church, or Anglican Church, they're trying to maintain control, they're trying to keep the Bible in Latin only. And when the Catholic Church finally gave up and printed their first English-language Bible, they did the New Testament in 1582, the Old Testament in 1610, collectively it's called the Douay-Rheims versions. These were done from the corrupted Latin texts, and they were not a good and accurate translation. So we do have that that stands alone as an example of a bad translation of antiquity. But when we look at all the other translations of antiquity, whether they came from the Church of England or from independent Protestants, they're all really good, accurate translations. A lot of people say, well, why do we need so many translations? God's Word is unchanging. Yes, it is. But the language of man is not unchanging. And so in order to accurately translate the Bible into the English of the 1530s, well, that's one thing. But the English of the 1560s or the 1600s is quite different, and that's why they felt compelled to continue to translate into the fresh English language of the day in order to maintain accuracy. John, you've produced at Great Sight a DVD about the Bible history. Some covers several things we talked about today called the Forbidden Book. Talk about that reference guide. That's an outstanding teaching tool. Um, talk about that and how people can get one. Well, the Forbidden Book is called the Forbidden Book because the Bible was forbidden for people to read all the way up until the Reformation of the 1500s. Today, we're very blessed to have God's Word available in our language. Uh, we at the Bible Museum have put together a package containing the Forbidden Book, the Printed Book, which is a spiral-bound book that goes over a lot of the information that we've been talking about. A lot of the information you'll see on our website if you click on English Bible History, but it goes into more detail. In the back of the Forbidden Book is Bible leaves or Bible pages. You receive a, a genuine original, not a reproduction, a real page from a King James Bible printed in the early 1600s and a real page from an English Geneva Bible that was originally translated and printed in the late 1500s with certificates of authenticity. In addition to that book and those two suitable for framing authentic leaves, you also get the companion DVD video where Dr. Craig Lamp takes you on a field trip across Europe with a camera crew, shows you the door where Luther nailed his theses of contention, he shows you the remains of the first Christian church built above ground. He shows you the building where William Tyndale produced the first printed English language scriptures, saving you the cost of a plane ticket to get there yourself. So all of that package together, the book, the leaves, and the DVD, if it were purchased separately, is $230. We have the full package there for just $75 with free FedEx shipping, no sales tax, you can find it on our website at greatsite.com. If you click on Featured 
events and scroll down to the bottom of the page. Well, this is an incredible opportunity. And John, we really appreciate you being with us today. As we conclude today's program, we do want to wrap up with some words of encouragement for our listeners regarding the impact of the Bible for our lives today. So if you would just give us a a word of encouragement as we close out our time. Absolutely. The Bible is very relevant in our lives today, and it's important as Christians that we endure through this apostasy. I can tell you that as a cooperative effort between Ligonier Ministries and Crossway, an annual assessment of people's feelings about theology is done, and the 2020 assessment determined that in the United States today, when asked, is the Bible something that has authority for our lives today? Only about 30% of Americans agreed that the Bible was relevant for our lives today. Now, I will also add that they did this survey in the United Kingdom, and the people of England responded, and only 5% said the Bible was relevant for their lives today. So as apostate as our nation has become, we're still far less apostate than Europe and England. But it's important that we get back to an understanding of how we got our Bible, that will help us to appreciate how God's Word has endured and been preserved throughout time, and that is the foundation upon which our faith stands today. Well, thank you again for joining us and sharing this information with us. For those who'd like more information, please go to GreatSite, that's GreatSite.com, to find out more about all of the opportunities and stories we've talked about today. And we appreciate you for joining us. Listen again and enjoy all our programs at IamAWatchman.com or wherever you stream your podcasts. Join us next time on A View from the Wall. A View from the Wall, in association with I Am a Watchman Ministries, exists to equip a worldwide audience with biblical truth, sharing it with others, and being prepared for Christ's imminent return. The team seeks to encourage, inspire, and equip watchmen for such a time as this. For information about the ministry and upcoming events, visit IamAWatchman.com. A View from the Wall is made possible by the team of dedicated pastors, editors, and the many contributors of I Am A Watchman Ministries. To support our efforts, give online at IamAWatchman.com and click on the Donate button. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time on A View from the Wall.